It's Friday the 13th, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, we kind of have a potpourri. We're really all over the map. We're not going to cover all 110 forms of arthritis in this podcast, but I think we're going to hit on a variety of them. Let's start with a report from Arthritis Care and Research, the companion journal to ANR, Najar et al., um, representing a group of investigators from around the country, looked at readmission rates amongst lupus patients. You know, lupus patients go to the hospital, not a good thing. My opinion. Lupus patients, when they go into the hospital, they go in for medical problems, not necessarily lupus problems. And that's kind of borne out in some of this research. But that's the way I want my residents to think about our lupus patients when they go in the hospital. Anyway, they looked at lupus patients who are hospitalized nationwide, 132,000 of them, in fact, and then looked at the numbers who needed to be readmitted within a month. Obviously, this is a subset of people that are not doing well, having problems. And um, the risk of having readmission amongst lupus patients, and I think these are roughly like 20 to 40 years old, um, included the following. Youth was a, a, a risk factor. Um, having autoimmune hemolytic anemia, an odds ratio of 1.86. All these are significant, by the way. Glomerular disease, 1.41, a 41% increased risk. Pericarditis, a 40% increased risk. Same for heart failure a 40% increased risk. Medicare and Medicaid patients had about a 20 to 26% increased risk of going back into the hospital. When they did go back into the hospital, most frequent diagnoses for readmission were sepsis, heart failure, lupus, and pneumonia. Three out of those four are not necessarily lupus related. So again, the point you want to teach is that when lupus patients go in the hospital, think differential diagnosis and presentation and take a lupus out of the equation when you come up with your first round of differential diagnoses and then factor in the lupus to complete your list. Our next report about um, antiphospholipid syndrome, and these are 200 patients with primary APS complicated by thrombocytopenia. So the question is, what is thrombocytopenia, low platelets, less than 100, Entail what does it what does it mean risk wise? Um, their risk of the they in this two, cohort of two hundred eighteen patients, the um, uh, frequency that had thrombocytopenia was thirty eight percent. The associations were with what you probably would imagine things that are associated with the antiphospholipid syndrome. Um, high on the list was visceral venous thrombosis, um, a twofold increased risk. Um, 13% versus actually a fourfold increased risk, almost three or four, 13.5 versus 3.5%. Hemolytic anemia, 27% versus 12%, almost a two plus increased risk. Low complements, uh, 26% versus 11%. And higher pregnancy morbidities, um, hazard ratio eight 
um, all these being significant. So I've always always thought that primary APS that manifests as thrombocytopenia, you'd get complications associated with thrombocytopenia. And you may not have the other key features of the antiphospholipid syndrome, meaning recurrent thrombotic events and or fetal wastage or recurrent miscarriage. And turns out that they're, based on this data, looking at the thrombocytopenia subset, there's a fair amount of overlap if you have the antiphospholipid syndrome. Interesting. Uh, systemic sclerosis patients, the worst ones I see are the ones with diffuse disease, the ones that have digital ulcers. This particular report looked at a 104 patients with systemic sclerosis and showed that patients who had digital ulcers were a unique subset in that they did have more severe disease. They did have more testing. They were more likely to have visits to their doctors, their healthcare providers in an emergency room. Not good. Uh, that's a special subset you, that you probably need to take note of. The Journal of Rheumatology had a really interesting report about patients from an early arthritis clinic and what happens to them when you follow them. So their cohort was about almost 36,000 people that they evaluated over many years. 86% um, were white um, and the rest, 15%, were ethnic minorities. Uh, and while they showed that the whites and the ethnic minorities all were seen by rheumatologists within three weeks of consult uh, and started on treatment within six weeks, so they were kind of not uh, experiencing delays in care per se, that they did show that minorities, ethnic minorities, had a lower odds of achieving remission at three months, 21% um, lower risk. <coughs> Excuse me. They were also less likely to receive methotrexate and to receive steroids. You know, this is kind of bothersome data that you see in the elderly. Elderly tend to be um, less aggressively treated, less treated with biologics, etc. And now we're seeing this again here with uh, ethnic minorities. I think that the, this goes under that topic of health disparities and the research we need to see that sort of helps us to equal things up. Time to level up, folks. Um, I did post a citation um, and a patient handout, if you will, from JAMA on lumbar stenosis. I think it's worth going, finding it, and retrieving it, printing it out, and using it in your clinic as a handout. It's pretty interesting. 103 million people worldwide um, have uh, lumbar stenosis. Um, First-line treatment is going to be activity modification, analgesics, and physical therapy. The benefits of, especially long-term benefits of epidural steroids really has not been established. And I think the bottom line here, here is that decompressive surgery is only recommended for a selected few, those with pain, those with limitation, those who fail, the aforementioned measures. The New England Journal last week did publish the results of the two BRAVE trials, BRAVE AA1 and BRAVE AA2. These are studies showing the efficacy of baricitinib in treating alopecia areata. Um, it's important to note because we've been talking about JAK inhibitors and what they can do for severe alopecia cases like alopecia universalis, but even just lesser cases of, of alopecia areata do respond to JAK inhibitors. The question is, is it going to be usual dose JAK inhibition or high dose? Now we're seeing the trials coming forward. I guess based on the research we're seeing that baricitinib will probably be the first drug approved, but all the other ones, all the other JAK inhibitors are doing trials in this particular skin condition and many more as we've discussed in past weeks. Annals of rheumatic disease discussed 
the utility of IL-6 inhibition in patients with new onset polymyalgia rheumatica. What? Now, you know about tocilizumab and its use in patients with GCA, where it's got a clear indication, and yet it's clearly not being used often enough. The recent guidelines say if you're, if you're diagnosed and, and you have uh, cranial ischemia and vision loss, you should be going on steroids and an IL-6 inhibitor. That's what the guidelines say. Well, again, there have been a number of studies showing that PMR also responds to IL-6. And this particular study, a small study, I think it's 39 patients or so, were given and are newly diagnosed PMRs or either given to placebo or uh, tocilizumab. And they measure the outcome as an improvement um, and then also time to first relapse. And then how, can, how well do you get off of steroids? They showed that steroid-free remission at week 16 was 63% on tocilizumab and 12% on placebo, so almost a five-fold higher odds of getting off steroids if you're on tocilizumab. And then we're talking about PMR here, so it's lower, lower dose of steroids. And the time to uh, first relapse was shorter um, compared to placebo, 130 days on placebo, 82 days, uh, actually the other verse, 82 on placebo, 130 on uh, M. The journal Neurology had a review paper on the safety of the BTK inhibitor, evobrutinib. It's been in trials in RA, some trials in lupus. It's odd that this shows up in the journal of, of Neurology, but there are trials of this going on in MS. And while its efficacy is currently under investigation, it looks like the safety of BTK inhibition doesn't appear to be outrageous or untoward. Uh, and we await the efficacy trials. Again, main things you see are what you see in most trials, UTI, nasal pharyngitis, diarrhea, transient LFTs, a very low serious infection rate of about 2.7 per 100 patient years. Rheumatology International has an interesting study on genicular nerve block in treating patients with painful knee OA. This report was brought to my attention by a tweet by Janet Pope where she was saying, what's the deal with genicular nerve blocks? Why have I never heard of it? Why am I not doing it? And the data looks better than I expected. And that's so I went and looked at the paper and I presented it in my own tweet. And it's a prospective randomized um, trial of ultrasound guided genicular nerve blocks um, uh, versus physical therapy in 102 patients with chronic knee pain due to OA. As you might expect, since the way I'm reporting this, that the nerve block was um, efficacious. So, you know, you generally get about 50% response rate here, and it was superior at walk distance, knee pain, functional and physical capacity of 12 weeks. So if you look at the numbers, I think these are Womack scores um, at week 0, 2, and 12, the nerve block had a 7, 3.7, and 5, and the PT had a 6.6, 4.4, and 5.2. Slight edge for the genicular nerve block. We know PT works. So I went and looked this up. It turns out that there's actually three different nerve blocks you can do, both on the um, superior tibial, um, lateral and medial tibial surfaces where you leave the tibial condyles and start to move, march up to the femur. Roughly at that turn there is where the genicular nerves are, the um, superior medial, the um, superior lateral, and there's also an inferior medial uh, genicular nerve blocks. Again, um, there's a procedural element to this. Reason we don't know about it in rheumatology is it seems to be in the literature of all the pain docs. And they seem to know about it. It seems to be maybe um, driven by expertise in, in this particular 
uh, procedure. Doesn't look like it would be particularly difficult, but again, these were ultrasound guided, and, and the research on ultrasound guided genicular nerve blocks looks like it's about 100% based on cadaveric studies. So rheumatologists need to learn about this because most of your drugs that you have for, or options you have for knee pain management in OA, not so good. I was a guy who had horrible knee OA pain for 30 plus years, and then I had my knee replaced, knees replaced, and now I'm a, you know, I'm a born again athlete and, uh, and have no more knee pain and threw away the Tylenol bottle. Um, but you gotta get to surgery, and that surgery is not for everyone, right? Um, Interesting articles um, that we did sort of a full-length treatment on um, on the website included the ASCOR study. As you know, uh, we've, I think, mentioned the ASCOR study in the past. That was um, a study where uh, a few thousand, almost 3,000 people who were either biologic naive or had failed one um, prior DMARD were given open-label abatacept, and they measured the efficacy in this trial um, by retention on drug. Good news, is it not? So if you continue to stay on the drug, it must be a good drug. The good news is that at two years, uh, about half were still on abatacept. Higher in biologic naive patients, 52% compared to um, people who had seen one or more biologics, 46% versus two or more, 43%. So a slight edge if you were biologic naive. But I think the real story here is whether you're seropositive or not. So looking at just the half of patients who are biologic naive, chances of responding and staying on the drug were 20 points higher if you're double seropositive. So double seropositive had a um, retention rate of 57%, single positive 50%, double seronegative 37%. That's, do the math, that's a 20% increase if you're seropositive here and never been on a biologic. If you were biologic experienced and you looked at it according to seropositivity, there still was an edge, but only an 8% advantage if you compared double seropositive to double seronegative, 48 versus 40%, single negative 40, 42%, not much not much advantage, but still some advantage if you were double positive uh, in this study. Again, I advocate for maybe considering seropositivity when it comes to prescribing some of the newer therapies, and I might consider abatacept or rituximab or JAK inhibitor based on my review of those literatures. Another interesting report um, from uh, Medscape that appeared this week was uh, a report out of the British Society of Rheumatology meeting where um, there was a presentation there of observational research. In fact, it was a, an audit of what happened to methotrexate monitoring in a cohort of RA patients, 854 RA patients, and what their monitoring was like prior to COVID and then after COVID. And they looked at the numbers of, uh, they sort of group patients. The old guidelines in the BSR said that you must have methotrexate uh, laboratory monitoring every month. They changed that in 2017 to be every three months. Turns out that a fair proportion of their patients are still getting monthly labs when it's not necessarily advocated. Um, these are, I assume these are stable patients. And then um, compared to those who got every three months and those who got like up to five months between the labs. And they showed no downside to this. Now, this is not a perfect study. This is observational. This is retrospective, but it is nonetheless. I think one of my colleagues, Yusuf Yaziki, wrote about this a number of years ago about how often we do monitoring 
with methotrexate. I think once you're doing, you know, if you're not a high-risk patient and once you've proven that you do well, you might be able to do more than every six to three months. But we don't really have a great study of this. And I would encourage someone to do a great prospective study where patients are randomized to a different monitoring group after they've proven they can tolerate and have no other risk factors for methotrexate toxicity. Lastly, um, a report about diagnostic delays in spondyloarthritis. Uh, first off, you're not making the diagnosis of spondyloarthritis most of the time. The vast majority of patients with ankylosing spondylitis and the like diseases are usually being diagnosed incidentally by other specialists or on um, routine x-rays where they say, oh, do you know you have ankylosing spondylitis? You know this is true. You see these people all the time at the grocery store or in the airport or at the train station. They walk with a, with a forward head tilt, with a stiff, um, slightly flexed lower back. You know, it's a very uh, recognizable habitus, right? So in this particular study, it was from two different trusts in the UK and the National Health Service where they uh, surveyed 106 patients with spondylitis and asked them about how they were seen. In the meantime, the diagnosis from symptom onset to being seen in healthcare was roughly about 5.7 and 5.9 years. That um, uh, at least um, 8 to 15% of that delay was in the primary care sector where they would, uh, two-thirds saw the GP one to five times, a quarter saw the GP uh, five to 10 times, 14% saw the GP or healthcare provider more than, more than 10 times. The idea is they bounce around without a diagnosis and they don't get to you until too late. What are we going to do to change that, folks? We really have to, again, the old data on the time to um, uh, see a rheumatologist, time to diagnosis, used to be eight to 10 years. So this is not bad. And there was another recent report from Columbia this past uh, week um, showing a delay of only two years. But I didn't like the methodology on that. That's why I didn't report it. But I think it's going down. But we need to create awareness and get these patients in sooner uh, rather than later. So um, uh, that's methotrexate monitoring, uh, ASCOR, and seropositivity and delays in diagnoses. That's it for this week on the podcast. You should um, go to the website or the email and click on ask Kush anything if you've got a case or a question i'm particularly asking nurse practitioners you've got a case that you'd need help on um that's pretty straightforward go to the website go to the email click on that you can record your case in question make it less than 45 seconds and we'll feature it here on the podcast i also want to remind you that we are doing a replay of um room now live 2022 uh, Two weeks ago, we did the psoriatic arthritis replay. Uh, this week, we did the rheumatoid arthritis replay. That was really well-received. Uh, well Next week, on the 17th of May, we're going to do a rerun of, the, of, a, of a session called the Spondyloarthritis Spectrum with lectures on the microbiome from Jose Scher on axial um, disease and psoriatic arthritis from Philip Meese and on spondyloarthritis in kids from Pamela Weiss. All interesting lectures. We'll be doing a review. You can sign up and watch it um, on the webinar through Zoom where you can ask questions. You can also watch this via live stream on our YouTube channel, our Facebook page, our LinkedIn page, and also on Twitter. It'll be live streamed uh, and you can watch it there and ask your questions there and we'll be happy to answer you. 
we've gotten a lot of um, views this way with a, a live stream. So hope you enjoy that. We're getting ready for you, Laura. Hope you are too. We'll talk next week. Take care.